Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the Bible Breakdown. Excited to be going back to Acts this week. So we're going to be in Acts 24 through 26. Uh, We've been doing a lot of kind of in and out of doing some Acts narrative along with some of Paul's epistles. And so now we're back and we're pretty close to the end of Acts here. We're about to finish up Paul's story in Acts, which I will let you know kind of ends on a cliffhanger. But uh, this is really getting toward the end. Uh, You may remember last time we were talking about Acts that he was being kept in protective custody by the Romans um, as the Jews were kind of going after him. And then they were going to take him over to the governor of the area. His name is Felix. We'll see him in the story. Um, And so he's basically going to be in this entire range of chapters, 24 to 26. This is basically like a judicial trial story. Uh, And there's some ins and outs that come with it. But without further ado, let's jump in. So in chapter 24, starting in verse 1, says this, And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. So you see this Tertullus who's come down with uh, the high priest. So this Ananias is different than the Ananias we see at the beginning of uh, Paul's story, who um, comes to Saul's aid at that time when he's blind, uh, the high priest. So he's a very important person. Tertullus, uh, you can see those words are just dripping with honey. We enjoy so much peace, Felix. Thank you, Felix. We love you, Felix. Uh, He's really trying to butter him up here to make him uh, a little more, I guess, willing to listen to what they have to say, willing to maybe even fudge the truth since pretty much all of what Tertullus said is not true, especially about profaning the temple. But um, in fact, he'd purified himself. You may remember Paul did this purification um, when he went to the temple. And part of that was to show the Jews that he was showing respect to the temple and everything. But that's kind of what goes on. So if you were following along, um, and if you weren't, I'll tell you, Uh, In the ESV and a lot of other versions, you're going to see that 6, verse 6, jumps straight to verse 8. So there's a little chunk there um, that is not included. So actually, it's a little bit of verse 6, the second half of verse 6, the beginning part of verse 8, and then all verse 7 have been taken out of the text by this point. So uh, the reason that the verse numerology is off is because um, the... Whenever the verses were added, the chapters and verses, remember, those are uh, human additions. Those are not divine additions. Uh, whenever the not- the verse notations were added, that verse 7 and the end of verse 6 and 8 were still considered to be uh, authentic, to be part of the Bible. So in order to not throw off the numbering of all the rest of Acts, they just, they just omit verse 7. So that's basically what's going on. So uh, who wants to talk about a little bit of text criticism? Um, probably 
nobody, none of you without a seminary experience um, have ever been interested in it or even maybe know what that is. But text criticism is basically the process that scholars go through to decide what manuscripts uh, of the Bible are authentic and which ones are not. So that is a very delicate science. Um, you've probably heard statistics about how many manuscripts we have for the New Testament, thousands upon thousands. Um, some of them are just a verse. Some of them are part of a verse. Some of them are entire chapters. Um, we have tons and tons and tons of manuscripts that help us uh, know what the original writings were because uh, we do not have any original writings. So these were all written basically between a span of like early 40s to at the latest, absolute latest, like 80, 90. So we're talking about nearly 2000 years ago. So I think you can understand why we wouldn't have originals, but we do have lots of manuscripts. It's very good, but it can be confusing because sometimes the manuscripts say different things. So that's not for us to, uh, that does not, should not give us reason to doubt our scripture. In fact, um, the fact that we can identify false manuscripts from true ones shows that we actually uh, have some really good stuff. We have a lot of really good information. So as they are going through um, these manuscripts, they have a couple of different things that they're looking for. The overarching thing is which of these readings would be most likely to explain the others? That's kind of your biggest question. You want to find the one that answers that question. Which one of these is most likely to have resulted in the whatever differences we see? So there's a couple of canons that you go through when you're looking at the internal evidence. So when you're just like reading the text itself, so comparing it to the rest of scripture, one is uh, a scholar is going to prefer the more difficult reading, which seems kind of counterintuitive, right? But the reason there are so many changes is scribes in that time, um, you know, if you were to report the facts of a situation, you would want to make sure you got everything just right. Sometimes scribes in the uh, early, uh, early centuries AD, they would take it upon themselves to kind of smooth things out and make them easier to read, um, or even sometimes add their own commentary to help explain which is nice of them, but for our purposes, trying to understand what is authentic, it actually is not great. But for that reason, you prefer the harder reading to be the authentic reading because nobody's typically going to make a copy of a manuscript and make it harder to understand. That makes sense. So, and for the same reason, uh, the shorter reading is to be preferred. Scribes were much more likely to add to their manuscript than subtract. So those are kind of two of the canons for internal evidence. And then when you're looking at the manuscripts, like you're saying apples to apples, which manuscript is better? Um, you can imagine the earliest is preferred. So if one came from the fourth century, you prefer it over one from the 13th century. Makes sense. Um, the ones that uh, are the most widely distributed are preferred. So if you see in different manuscript traditions, the same reading, you say, okay, that's probably most likely to be authentic. And then um, when a manuscript is proven to be very reliable elsewhere, then that manuscript is typically preferred. So I tell you all that very boring stuff. And if you'd like to talk more about that, I would be more than happy to bore you for longer. But I tell you all that because in the examination of the manuscripts that had verse the end of verse 6, beginning in verse 8, and then verse 7, um, they decided that that, while it may have been in the text when the notation, the verse notations were added, um, they do not believe that was authentic. They believe it was added by scribes, so that's why you're going to see that gap. So this went in a different direction than you probably thought it was, but here we are. So anyways, that is why that little chunk of verse is missing. So 
going back to the actual story here now. Um, so this is what the Jews have brought before Felix. He is a governor. He is a Roman governor. And so then Paul's going to give a little bit of a defense himself. I'm just going to kind of sum up one of the big things that he's saying in verse 14 and 15 here in, in chapter 24. He says, but this I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So Paul's defense here, um, at least this is kind of probably more directed to the Jews, is that he is explaining the same faith that he has always believed, that he has learned more about, but he is explaining that the law and the prophets that he grew up uh, reading and learning the same that these other Jews had grown up reading and learning, they all pointed to Jesus. So that's kind of his point. And he defends himself by saying he's only on trial because of the message. So this is his message. They don't like it. That's why he finds himself on trial. And it's not because he has caused disputes, which they're kind of accusing him of being a, a rebel, a rabble rouser, if you will. Um, which he says, I'm not doing that. He says, well, there was one time when I brought up the resurrection in front of the Pharisees and Sadducees, but you know, that was just one thing. He says that in verse 21, he kind of admits like, okay, yeah, I, could, I did say something to kind of stir people up, but it was still a good question. So um, after hearing all of that, Felix, who um, we see in verse 22, it says that he had a, a rather accurate knowledge of the way. So he was familiar with what Christianity was. Um, he basically defers and say, we're going to wait till uh, Lysias the Tribune comes down, and so what he does is he keeps uh, Paul in custody until then. So, and then verse 24, we kind of see what Felix is up to. It says, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus and desired to do the Jews a favor. He left Paul in prison. So Felix calls on Paul to chat with him and they talk about Jesus. Uh, Felix gets real uncomfortable when Paul starts talking about righteousness, self-control, coming judgment. This kind of calls to mind when John the Baptist um, was talking uh, to Herod about, um, I believe it was, I'm trying to think with his, I think he was having kind of romantic relationships with his, I think it was his niece or something like that. Yeah, I'll have to double check on that. But um, anyways, he was kind of calling out Herod for inappropriate kind of romantic relations and Herod did not care for that one bit and neither did um, Herod's romantic involvements, who's the one who eventually asked for his head. But this kind of calls to mind that when righteousness comes up, it can tend to make you a little uncomfortable. So that's kind of how Felix was. He was like, okay, go go away. I don't want to talk anymore about this. But he kept bringing it back. And Paul, I assume, kept. it says they kept talking, but he was really hoping that Paul would eventually try to bribe him. So Felix is basically drawing this thing out, like trying to get Paul to bribe him and release him. I guess two years worth of failed attempts to receive a bribe um, and Felix is like, well, I'm leaving. And he's like, I'll do the Jews a favor. I'll leave him in prison. So we're talking two years now that Paul has been in custody over this matter by the time we get to, to uh, chapter 25. So in chapter 25, uh, we see that there's a new governor, Festus. 
Um, so we go from Felix to, Fest to Festus. Um, and so Festus, a part of him, I guess, getting acclimated to his job is he's trying to figure out this whole Paul debacle. And so Festus goes to Jerusalem and he asks the uh, Jewish leaders just kind of what's going on with this. And they're like, hey, you should bring Paul to Jerusalem um, for some trial. And we see in verse three, it says, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. So the Jews are up to no good. Um, so Festus does go back and he gives Paul this option. He gives them the option that um, he can go back to Jerusalem. But Paul says, I am not here because I have broken a law of the Jews. I'm here because I am, uh, you know, I've, I've been accused of breaking laws against the government. So I do not wish to go back to Jerusalem. Paul was probably wise to what would happen there. He may not have known about this plot, but he knew things probably wouldn't be great. Um, so he rejects that option. And what he actually does is he appeals to Caesar. So that was a, a right for a Roman citizen to appeal to Caesar. And Festus says, to Caesar, you have appealed to Caesar, you shall go. So Paul basically goes to have uh, his petition is to have his case heard before the government in Rome. So we know that God has promised Paul that he will be going to Rome. So that it's hard to, to say whether uh, Paul was intentionally trying to push it that way because he knew that the Lord had that for him. It just so happened that way. You know, we, it's hard to know exactly his intention, but we, what we will see is that um, this is in keeping with what God had told Paul would happen to him, that he would end up going to Rome and have a chance to testify about Jesus there. So that's basically the summary of what happens in that first paragraph, uh, that first section of chapter 25. And then uh, Festus, guess what? More governing officials are going to come and get involved in this whole Paul thing. So Festus has some very, very fancy guests named Agrippa and Bernice. So Agrippa was the king, but he was under the rule of Rome. So he was a fake king. But even so, he was afforded, I'm sure, much uh I mean, there's one point where it says when he comes in that he comes in with a lot of pomp. He, at verse 23 there in verse or in chapter 25, it says the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. So he's a he's a very fancy gentleman. Um, he has a lot of authority, even though he is still under the umbrella of Rome. Rome is far away. He probably gets to do what he wants a lot. So Agrippa is an interesting figure. Um, so his sister uh, was Felix's wife, Drusilla, from that we saw in chapter 24. So there's a little connection there. Um, we learn in this that he was well-educated in uh, the matters of Judaism. So he is familiar with what the, where the Jews are coming from. Uh, what we know about Agrippa, too, is he was a pretty loyal follower of Rome. Um, he would later, in AD 70s, when uh, the temple is destroyed and basically um, Jerusalem loses its independence, he's going to side with Rome in that. And so he's going to be a part of quashing this rebellion in Jerusalem and the, that eventually leads to the temple being destroyed, very loyal to Rome. So that's kind of what we know about him. So he comes in, he's like, Festus, what is going on with this Paul guy? And Felix, or and Festus gives him all the information. He's like, this guy got left by this man Felix. And it's all this. So he basically just gives him the rundown of what happens in chapters uh, 24 and then the first half of 25. And so Agrippa is very interested. Agrippa and Bernice are, it's like, this is like their version of like Judge Judy, I guess. 
Um, so they want to see what Judge Judy has to say. They're very interested in watching this court proceeding, even though it seems a relatively small matter, you would think, to a king, but he really wants to hear. So like I said, verse 23, they come in with great pomp and uh, they're ready. And then so Paul comes before Festus and Agrippa. So in chapter 26 now, we move there. And this is what Paul is going to say in verses 4 through 11. He says, my manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religions, religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So this is Paul's intro. This is what he says to Agrippa. And we see here in verses, I skipped two and three, um, but I think it could be helpful to give the context. He says, I consider myself fortunate that as before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So he, rec- he knows that Agrippa knows about um, the, the matters of Judaism. So he knows that it will be helpful, probably more so than Festus, who um, you know may not have been as in touch with kind of the cultural issues. Maybe he didn't know what a Pharisee was or what is the resurrection of the dead, things like that. So he tells him this, he basically gives him his life story. Um, He tells him like, I was, it's like what we looked at in uh, Philippians three, not too long ago, that he was the Hebrew of Hebrews. He was, he was Hebrew number one. No, no person could point at him and say he wasn't doing a good job of obeying the law of uh, uh, adhering to the man-made laws of Judaism. Um, he said, I, I did everything just right. And that's basically what he's communicating here. And I think what he's doing is he's showing them that this is not because he has any sort of animosity toward the Jews or toward his people, that he was one of them. Um, and that he even, when he believed that Jesus was a bad character, he sought to persecute him. So then we see in verses uh, 12, on through verse 23, he's going to kind of give his story. So he basically gives his conversion story. Um, and I won't repeat that just for the sake of time. Um, but it, it, you do get a little more detail um, on his conversion story. You see a little more uh, that of what Jesus says to him. So it's a good read there um, from 12 to 18 in chapter 26. Um, but he then moves on into uh, verse 24. Or well, rather, Festus says in verse 24, after he's given all this, um, and then he says, this is basically the reason that I've been proclaiming Jesus is why I'm here. And that's why, that's the only reason I'm brought before you, not because I've actually been a dissenter, a rabble rouser. I have just been a person who is preaching Jesus. So in verse 24, then, um, Festus is going to give a response here. So let's see 
what he says. Verse 24. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things. And to him, I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. So basically, Festus is kind of like, what's going on here? Come on. And I, he's like, he basically thinks it's nonsense. But Paul appeals to the fact like, I'm talking to King Agrippa because I know he knows these things. I know he knows what's going on. So King he asks him in verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. So this is what we see. This is kind of the the end. And then in verse uh, 30 through 32, it says, And the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So that's kind of the ending of the story. They hear him and they're like, yep, he's not doing anything wrong. He's not a Roman dissenter. Um, this seems like just a disagreement within um, the Jewish faith. And so that's kind of the, the end. He tells him this story, and uh, but he's still going. He has appealed to Caesar, so to Caesar he will go. So that's what we're going to see coming up in the rest of Acts. But... Um, I think it's important for us as we look at this story to see Paul as an example of what it looks like to be ready in and out of season. We're going to see Peter write that in one of his epistles that we should be ready in and out of season to give a reason for the hope that we have, give a reason for the faith that we have to basically be willing to tell people about Jesus in and out of season, wherever you are, that you're ready to tell people about Jesus. And I'm sure that Paul felt like this was probably in season, right? Okay, he's about to be before this big courtroom. He's had years to think it up, you know, and talk about it. So he's maybe ready. But Paul, we see throughout, everywhere he goes, anytime he's challenged, he gives, he's ready to give a testimony, to give the story of what God has done in his life. And I think that's the example that we want to follow. And let's think about some of the elements that he generally has in his testimony. One, he's always going to talk about who he was before Jesus. He lets them know this is who I thought I was. This is what I thought was important. And this is kind of what I hung my hat on for him. It was his obedience to the law. That was what he hung his hat on. So we could think of it for us. Like I lived a good life. I wasn't that bad. Maybe I went to church, you know, whatever that might be. Or, you know, then we get this uh, part. He always admits this sinfulness that he had and his recognition of it now in hindsight. And he always admits the, the wrong that he'd done to Christians when he thought that was the right thing to do. He always talks about how he persecuted Christians, that he was right there cheering everybody on, that he was watching the the coats, that he was seeking to persecute more and more people. So it's kind of that, like, yeah, maybe I did some good things, but then now looking back, I realize the sin that was in my life. I realized what I was doing was sinful. And that's because of how Jesus enters in. So he always explains to them how Jesus enters in to his life. He tells them about his conversion experience of what this mission that he was given by Jesus to tell uh, the Gentiles about 
God to share the gospel with them. So we regularly see these elements when he is defending, um, when he's telling a story, I say defending, he's partially giving a defense in this, but then he's partially just using this as an opportunity to talk about Jesus. Um, and he always talks about, you know, who he was before Jesus. He's willing to admit the things that were so wrong about what he did. I mean, what, what does that do for you? If you're one of the pillars of your church is admitting that I used to try to kill people in the church. Um, that's a huge step of, of vulnerability, of honesty, of owning his sin um, that Paul takes. And then, of course, he explains how Jesus enters in and how, and he also talks about how Jesus affects his life going forward. He talks about this is why I'm going to the Gentiles because of this experience I've had with Jesus. So I think for us, as we think through this, what I want to, the question I kind of want to ask is, are we willing to be ready in and out of season to share our story. And I, I think what I'd really like to focus on, are we ready to admit our own failures? Are we ready to admit the things that we've done wrong, whether it was before we knew Jesus or even after we knew Jesus and things that we still did that were out of a, a sinful flesh, things that we um, were caught in that represented the sin that still exists in us, even after we believe in Jesus. I think that sometimes for us, we can be rightfully, we can rightfully be hesitant to bring shame or dishonor on the name of Jesus. And sometimes when we have believed Jesus and are sinning, or even if we have a, a life in which we see a lot of our sin, and then we came to know Jesus later, sometimes admitting those wrongs can make us fear that we're going to bring some sort of dishonor or shame onto the name of Jesus, because a person who claims Jesus shouldn't be doing these things, right? A person who knows Jesus shouldn't have, have a past like my past, right? But I think that what that really does is it creates this gap, this chasm of separation, not between us and Jesus, but between us and others, people who don't know Jesus. Sometimes they can view us, uh, people who don't know Jesus can view us as people who think we've got it all together, or maybe they even think we've got it all together. And when they look at their life, they say, well, I don't belong in this group because I know I don't have it all together. So there can either be this, this isn't for me because I'm not like them, or maybe even a little bit of feelings of hypocrisy when people see and, and know that there's brokenness in our lives. So I think for us to live authentically for Jesus requires that we pull back the curtain, um, that we are willing to show our failures, not to brag on our failures, not to shine a spotlight on our failures, to you know, remind people how cool we used to be before we knew Jesus or something like that. But really to show that, to show A, a recognition that we are human, a recognition that we have sin in our lives. And B, that just shows Jesus power more when we can say, this is what I was doing, but this is how Jesus enters in. This is what Jesus has done to change me. This is the grace and forgiveness I've experienced through Jesus. This is the reconciliation in, to God and to others that I've seen through Jesus. I think we have to be ready anytime we, we'd like to share the gospel with somebody that we're ready with our story. And that story inevitably has to involve our brokenness. Because if we don't recognize our former brokenness and even our current brokenness, then we're not going to really connect with anybody. And honestly, we're, we may be trying to protect Jesus and there's maybe some wisdom to that, but at the end of the day, he doesn't need protecting. And sometimes we're just really protecting our own pride. I know that's my experience. I don't want to talk about the things that 
I've done wrong with somebody who doesn't believe in Jesus. Not necessarily because I think it'll reflect poorly on Jesus. I don't want it to reflect poorly on me. And that is pride speaking. That is not speaking truth. That's not being ready in and out of season. And I recognize that in my own heart, that whether it's to a non-believer or a current believer or really anybody in my life to admit that I still have sin, that I still have troubles that I deal with, or that even, you know, a few years ago I dealt with this, there can be for me a great, a shame attached to that. But when we hide that, we it's almost like we don't think that Jesus was good enough, that Jesus was really able to redeem that, that even in light of that, Jesus still has that grace and forgiveness for us. So this for me has been, and just as we've read Paul um, testify before people, it's been a convicting thing for me to think of how vulnerable he is and how willing he is to admit some really horrible things that he's done um, and how I can be so hesitant because I'm afraid of how it will make me look. But when we are willing to admit our own brokenness, we create a bridge between us and other people because everyone has brokenness. And the great thing about Jesus is that he turns brokenness and he makes it into something whole. So we're offering somebody who meets us in the midst of brokenness. But if we're not revealing that brokenness, you know, in a healthy way, then um, we make it seem like a uh, some sort of legalistic cult where we just believe in Jesus and we never do anything wrong. And we know that that's not the case. So uh, this has been something good for me to think about. I hope that it will be good for you to think about, too, as you just consider your walk and how you re- uh, you interact with others, that you can be willing to admit your own brokenness because that just shines a light on how wonderful, how powerful, how gracious, how forgiving our Jesus is.